Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, another wild day for the market. The sea of red across the board. But one analyst says there is one easy way to profit this year. He'll be here to tell us what that is. Plus, $74 billion. That's how much Bristol-Myers is paying to buy biotech company Celgene. And the stock is soaring. Is there another big deal coming down the pipeline? The traders will weigh in. But first, we start off with the market sell-off. The bear roars again. It was the warning that shocked Wall Street. Apple confirming the fears of investors that a trade war with China is causing a slowdown. Then light manufacturing data adding insult to injury. Stocks getting slammed. The Dow down nearly 700 points at the lows of the session. And this is after we've already seen warnings from the likes of FedEx and Micron about the macro environment. So is this a rude awakening for Wall Street as we approach earnings season? And should we brace ourselves for more warnings and guidance cuts? Guys? Yeah, I think you have to brace yourself for more warnings. If I'm an Apple supplier, I mean, the, the, and Tim spoke about this last night, as did Dan. I mean, the, the door has been opened. If you want to guide lower, now's the time to do it. You have so many, uh, so many excuses you can make to guide lower. Why wouldn't they? So yes is the answer. I think S&P earnings has to be revised lower, and you have to wonder what the right multiple is to put on that. I think Pete might agree with this. I think the VIX at 25 and a half is still too low. I think that should have probably a three handle, and you might see that over the next week or so. And in my opinion, I absolutely think you have to retest that 2350 level that we briefly touched, I believe, on Christmas Eve or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Apple closed at the lows of the session pretty much. Terrible price action. No forgiveness whatsoever for what might be seen as a China problem, more so than an Apple problem, maybe a little bit of both. Yeah, look, I, I don't think this is just a China problem. It's certainly a, a refresh problem. It's certainly, you know, incentive problem. It's Lack suddenly, of innovation you know, There's problem, a lot of different yeah. things, and, and, and yet we're supposed to get excited about services growth. I, I, I can tell Dan's not very excited over there. But I, I just want to say, I, I think today was not even about Apple. I think today was all about macro. I think it was all about rates. I think it was all about a carry trade in the end that then triggered a lot of stops. and We had the 10-year bond, and I know this is something we usually don't talk about, but the 10-year bond rallied almost an entire point. And we're talking about the Fed and Powell out tomorrow. Well, you know, we talk about that the short end of the curve is usually the part of the curve that the Fed can control, not the long end. I think they've lost the short end, too. We're at 239 on the two-year note. And you can tell that the market is pushing the Fed in a direction they may or may not go. But today was about macro and rates. ADP was good. We got a bad ISM, and that knocked the market down. Yeah, bad ISM on top of all sorts of other regional manufacturing surveys, which came in late, lighter than expected. But what does 2.55% on the 10-year yield tell you? Yeah, but wouldn't you think with bad <laughs> economic data that that should be pretty decent, right? For, for I mean, when you think about the fact I mean, that— Bad news is good news? Yeah, exactly. But, but, I, I'm just saying, so like, we're, in a, we're in a period well, right now where people are, are selling first asking questions uh, later. Um, you know, listen, I, I thought the price action in the S&P 500, to me, um, it is— 
is broader than just Apple. I think as we head into earnings period, I think what was unique about this was A, it was the first trading day of the year. B, it was one of the largest stocks in the entire market. Um, and so when you think about like what the setup is into earnings over the next couple of weeks, if we don't have a lot of pre-announcements and expectations are still high for some names like Amazon or Google, some of the other big ones, and Microsoft, which haven't given back all of those gains, which a name like Apple has, you have a lot of single stock risk there. But I think for the other names that have been in bear market for the last year or so, I think there's less single stock risk. Well, it's all it's, it's been about vision for a long time now, and I think that's the biggest problem we have, which started with the industrials. When we went through this last earnings cycle, the industrials are the ones that really sort of kicked it all off when we looked, and they're trying to get vision so they can look forward. The problem is, it used to be you get six months, nine months, that was pretty accurate. Now they're talking about maybe 30 days. They have no accuracy to look forward in terms of how is this going to change things? How is the trade war going to be changing things for these companies? Where are they going to, where's the CapEx coming? How do they know how much they want to spend and how they're going to spend it if they don't have any clue in the trade war? So that's really why I continue to harp on the idea. I understand the Fed. Everybody says Fed, 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 Fed. I say trade war first, Fed second. I, I, I want to make one point. And, yeah. and this was really why the tax cut was such a bust last year. We were seeing this lack of visibility. We did not see this CapEx boom throughout the whole year. That was really one of the major reasons for that corporate but tax cut. We didn't see it. And, and, and here we are, year over year, Tim. Think about it, right? Year over year. And think about how pessimistic we are versus how optimistic we were last January at this well, time. And I am thinking about it. And, and I do think that you could have been skeptical about whether CapEx was going to go into companies anyway, that we were really just going to be buying back stock and, and, and essentially capital markets uh, engineering 101. Um, the, the reality is we've stolen victory. We've stolen victory from the jaws of defeat. We've stolen Anyway. You nailed it, guys. The bottom line is it's, it's too bad because I actually think we are in a place where uh, a lot of the trade dynamic really is what's at work here. Um, because it's it's forced every company to stop cold in any plans they had on CapEx. Mm-hmm. It's thrown so much uncertainty. And by the way, this isn't something that's been in the last three or four months. This started in March of 2018, folks. It started with steer tariffs. And right, right away, that threw the supply chain into flux. But for some reason, within the past 30 to 60 days, that's where we've seen the most sort of backpedaling, right? I mean, if you take a look at at how Apple warned, right, just at the end of November, they came out and said China doesn't fall into the category of the other slowing emerging markets like Brazil. FedEx, when it warned, right, there was just just a couple months or a month after it raised its guidance. I mean, these are just sudden, dramatic reversals in outlook. Dramatic reversals, but in terms of Federal Express, this is a stock that peaked basically this time last year and has been a slow drift lower the entire year. Obviously exacerbated over the last month, month and a half. So, in my opinion, who the... If I had to pick one company that I'd be concerned that they could come out and warn, and we talked about this last night, you know, we talked about Caterpillar with almost a single-digit PE, but is that telling you a story? Dan mentioned this last night. If Cat comes out and warns, and I think they're due to report on January 29th, again, that could open the floodgates of all these other series of names that we talk about from time to time. Which is why so many of these names, I think you've seen the contraction in their PE, because people are looking at them right now, and they're just saying, look, if they can't provide us any vision, I don't want to be in the stock. And I think a lot of people have been selling. At what point is it in the stock? Well, I mean, at what yeah, point hasn't is that it been going on enough? Has, yeah. hasn't that been right. going on though for three or four months? It I, has, I don't think we have. But seen it's been the persistent. It's been persistent. It's not like they've stopped. I mean, and when you look at vol- you mentioned volatility. I don't think we see a break in volatility until we get some answers to this whole trade war thing because we're moving two percent a day whether we like it or not, and that means the VIX should be trading at thirty-two. So trading at a twenty-five right now, it's a discount. 
that gives you a little bit of an idea. 32 VIX correlates to 2% move daily. And if you put in the intraday moves that we're getting, it's far more than 2%. We are seeing extraordinary moves yeah, look every at single day. I mean, the currencies last night really tell you they were, you're getting, and these are two and a half, three standard de- deviation moments, which just means in your, your bell curve. These things never happen. These are the deepest you know, liquidity assets. Real, real quickly, look at the world. chart of the 10 year. I think we have one. When you look at the volatility that we've had since the taper tantrum, the last time the 10 uh, year yield was at 3% was 2013, early 14. Look at that chart right there. We just broke that uptrend um, that had been in place since what a lot of people were calling a generational low a couple years ago. And when you look at charts like that, take off the 10-year yield, you say, okay, we just really might have hit a major inflection point. And I don't believe that the 10-year yield going down right now, where it is, if it goes back towards 2%, I do not think that's good for equities. All right. Our next guest says Apple is just the tip of the iceberg and earnings season is going to get ugly. Let's bring in fund strats. Tom Lee. Tom, great to see you again. Happy New Year to you. Um, The last time we spoke was approximately two or three weeks ago when you said that you were looking for a 10 percent rally in the S&P 500 going to year end. Yeah. And so what 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 has changed you to the point where you say earnings season is going to be ugly? You know, this year may not be that great. Yeah. Well, um, you know, clearly we were hoping for a rally into year end on seasonals. and It didn't happen. So, you know, it's been unfortunate. But we weren't really thinking 2019 was necessarily going to have a lot of tailwinds. And I think, um, you know, a lot of things have happened in the last couple of weeks. And I think the, probably the deadliest thing has, has really been what the Fed's done. I think the Fed has really undermined liquid markets' confidence about how policy is seen. And I think that's really worsened uh, trading dynamics. Fed more so than tariffs? Yes. In beca- trade? Yeah, because in the sense, um, the trade dynamics can be arguably transitory, right? So in other words, if you have tariffs that are hurting visibility, once you get resolution, you know, sort of there's pent up demand. But if you tighten financial conditions, you force people to liquidate positions, you force shrinkage, you start to see sort of these chaotic moves across a lot of markets. I think that's very damaging because now that takes a lot of time to fix. Doesn't that assume, though, that China's economy is, is, well, I don't want to say falling apart, deteriorating? Um, simply because of the trade war and that once that is removed, that that economy will actually be okay? Because it seems like there's a whole other separate situation going on in China, which is being exacerbated by trade tensions, but may have already been in effect even prior. Yeah, I think one of the sort of structural shifts taking place globally is China's contribution to global growth is actually shrinking relative to the U.S., so, you know, let's say that the story from 2000 to 2010 was China was the majority share of global GDP growth. You can get it from OECD data. In the last five years, the U.S. has contributed more to global growth than China. In fact, EM X China has actually shrunk from on a U.S. dollar basis. So the gravity of global growth is shifting back to the U.S. I, but, but, Tom, it seems to me, if you think about the Fed, and, and people want to point their finger at the Fed, and there's reasons to do that, but the Fed is no different now than they were two months ago. And I would argue that, that, that Powell came on uh, two weeks ago and was as dovish as he could possibly have been. He's not going to come out and say, I have no, uh, there's going to be no hikes yeah. next year. Um, he's told you, you're at the bottom end of, of, of neutral for the Fed. That's pretty darn, I think, dovish. But at, at, a, at a minimum, for data-dependent folks... Well, I think there's two, ways, there's two ways to measure that. One is uh, equity market reaction to Fed rate hikes. So there have been 40 since 1990. The single worst ever market reaction to a Fed hike was an 8% decline. 
happened in December 2018. The second worst in history was the March hike. So we've already had two instances where the market and the Fed didn't see eye to eye and the Fed moved in a different direction. The second is, if you look at the history of hikes when the 5-1 or the 2-10 is this flat, it has almost resulted in calamity. This is the most dangerous time for the Fed to be hiking. So I don't think it's about being dovish. I think it's that the path is So wrong. December hike should not have happened, though? I mean, that was yes. so on the table for such a long time. Well, in fact, if you look at Fed futures probabilities now, the probability of the hike this year I is actually it. zero. It's 50% You think for there a should cut. be a cut this year? You think and there I, will be a and cut And I think they year. have to talk about the balance sheet now. I think this is... You know, we have dangerous financial conditions. So, Tom, but, but think about it. So we spent a lot of time talking about the Fed, but the backdrop, and I think this was what Mel was trying to get to, is that we had this kind of weakening economy. And then when you, uh, globally, okay, we didn't have the synchronized growth that was expected in the beginning of 2018. And then you think about what just happened with trade. Look at semiconductors as a group. It's a great example, especially with the backdrop of Apple. We had all this ordering in Q1 and Q2 in anticipation of this what really, what is going to be an unforced error, if you think about it, as far as trade tariffs. And then now we get to the back half of 2018, early 2019, and we're seeing considerable growth, uh, you know, slowing. So now all of a sudden you're going to have an inventory issue in 2019, and that could exasperate all of this, what we're talking about. Correct? And I would say that in, in that context, I almost think monetary policy should be very different than where it is today. So to me... I see a lot of damage, I and mean, I can see it in our clients. You know, they're shrinking books. This is this is this is not, you know, counter cyclical. This is pro cyclical, and it's damaging markets. You have a target for for uh, 2019 yet? Um, so we're going to publish all that next week. But in that context, I I think that ultimately the Fed does do the right thing. I don't think we have a recession, and a critical level, which Rob Slimer talks about, is the 200-week moving average. The stock market is right there. That's where markets usually turn if they're in a midlife crisis. All right, Tom, good to see you. Thank you. Tom yeah. Lee of Fundstrat. Yeah, well, it's funny. I think the Fed's doing the right thing. I don't have a Fed conversation. I think if you're talking about President Trump, for example, his barometer, his benchmark, his report card has been the stock market. And more so than ever in his administration, they're in dire need of a win. So you would imagine, given what's happening in our markets over the last month, month and a half, maybe he reaches out to President Xi and says, look, this is mutually assured destruction. Let's come up with something that makes us both look good. And so maybe you get a trade deal that for a week or so will assuage some of the fears in the market. I happen to think it's greater than just that. But I think that could help and it could happen. Uh, Jerome Powell speaks tomorrow, by the way, on a panel with uh, Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke yes. in Atlanta. Should be an interesting The two that got away scot-free. Yeah. No, just just add things to the Some of the damage. <laughs> well, I, again, I, I think if people are waiting for the Fed to react to the market tomorrow, they, they're going to be holding their breath a long time. And, and I would go out and say that I, I think anybody who didn't think the Fed was going to go in December, this is exactly what happened in the first quarter of 2016. And I'll say it again. I think we're in 2016. Hopefully it's 2016 light where we opened down 12 percent to start the year. And it was a growth scare. We finally figured it out. We didn't go into recession and we actually got through that. But to me, look, people blaming this on the Fed right now is absurd. Uh, you had to know what the Fed was going to do. They've been they've been telegraphing this. Maybe they've been overly telegraphing it that they're going to go and be robotic about it. And that's what people are concerned about. But the ISM today was five points lower. It was 54. We haven't been this low in 26 months. The U.S. economy is slowing down. 
And, and the Fed is going to always lag that move. Investors should be figuring that out. I'm not saying we've all been right. Um, but to blame this on the Fed in the last two weeks to me is is not what we should be doing. Just quickly, Pete, what do you do? How are you positioning yourself right now? Well, I, I think that we still see some downside. And, and I, when I'm looking at the paper that we're seeing in the options world right now, the derivatives world, and I, I talked about volatility already, I was buying put spreads today in the IWN, the Russell. Right. Just because... That's actually held up better than people might think in terms of just a couple weeks ago it was 125, today it was 134 and a half. I it's think slightly we outperformed the, the SPX yeah, over the last and so week. I expect to see that maybe get pressure. Real quickly down. on the Russell, it basically has round tripped the move of the last two years since late 2016. Since I think you're going to see that in all the major election. indices, but I think they're really hard presses on days like today because to your point, Mel, there are tape bombs out there that could squeeze the market. And I think kicking the can down the road on tariffs, getting past that March 1st deadline that's pretty arbitrary for all intents and purposes, thinks that's the sort of thing that may give you the opportunity to put on the sort of protection that you may want further on into the year. Coming up, Wall Street's been on a wild ride since the highs back in September, but if the volatility has you feeling dizzy, don't worry. One top analyst says he's got a surefire way to profit. Plus, check out Celgene. The stock is soaring after making a $74 billion deal with Bristol Myers. And if you listen to Pete Najarian, you would have known this was coming. He'll tell us what he thinks could be the next big deal. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Much more fast money right after this. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out one big bright spot in the market today. Celgene soaring as pharma giant Bristol Myers announces it will acquire the biotech firm for a whopping $74 billion. And Pete here pitched the stock back in October. Take a listen. And when you look at this company and you start with the CEO, this is a CEO who's been in, been in the world of pharmaceuticals as well as biotech for over 30 plus years. You gotta love that kind of experience. Also, he's a gambler. He's a guy who's very aggressive. Made the largest acquisition for Celgene just this past year in Juno Therapeutics. So I think that sets up for something very good going into the future. That was a nice call. So what do you do now, Pete? Why are you expecting more deals in the healthcare space? I do. I think there are going to be more deals. I think in terms of Celgene, I think you just got to exit and walk away and yeah. be happy that you've got any kind of a move to the upside. But I think looking forward, there's all kinds of names you could throw out there. And I don't know that I have any specific name, although I would say Gilead's been a name that's very interesting. Now, it's going to be a big bite. Be an, be acquired? To be acquired. $85 billion it, it would be a, market it, cap. Yeah, but there are some, I mean, the, the deal today we talked about, but I there needs to be pipelines. That's what everybody's after. And that is where the money is. And if there are blockbusters sitting in these pipelines, especially if they're in the mid or late stage right now, that's something that is absolutely. But the big pharma names really want that. They need that. Today's deal wasn't really about a pipeline. It was really about in defense of a pipeline that's going stale. No, I mean, well, it's, it's about, about acquiring, acquiring a pipeline. But that's, the, pri- a pipeline. But that's the whole process is, are you, how is your pipeline? Uh, do you have drugs that are it's not kind of a personal question <laughs> that are going to be competition or not and all the rest of that? Are they getting ready to go generic and all right. that, you know, competition yeah. coming out there? So, yes, that's part of it. And I think that's exactly why, even though I think there's some great pipelines out there in Merck, in Pfizer, in some of these names, if they want to diversify and get more, that's the way to do it because it takes about two and a half billion dollars to get your drug to market on right. each and every one of these and drugs. And Celgene has three drugs in the pipeline that are expected to be approved by the FDA in the yep. next few years or so. 
how the mighty have fallen, though. I mean, a couple of years ago, we were talking about Celgene was $120 stock, and they were the ones that would do big game fishing. Now the worm has turned. But that was a great call. I look at Bristol-Myers after today and say, wait a second, really, what's going on with Bristol, stock that has underperformed the group, actually probably underperformed the broader market, and has a ridiculously poor day today? They report, I think, in a couple weeks. One has to wonder, you see in trough valuations in Bristol-Myers. I still go back to Pfizer and say, look, I know it trades more expensive than the rest of the space. I also think it's probably the best one out there. So for my money, I think Pfizer here still works. Yeah, but, you know, Mel introduced this segment by saying a bright spot, uh, uh, you know, on a crappy day. And, you know, I just she didn't makes say me, crappy. Well, I'm going to say crappy. You know, you know what happens when you take one piece of crap and then you take another piece of crap and you put them together? You get a much bigger piece of crap. Well, what I'm saying is that Bristol's down 40% from its highs made a couple years ago. Celgene's still down 30-some percent from its highs. These are two companies that are really struggling. Biotech in general has well, been slammed to the downside. So what I'm saying is, I don't see it as a bright spot. If you see a bunch of acquisitions like this, but you've got like single-digit names out there that actually do have growth. Single-digit PE names. Yeah, single-digit okay. PE names yeah. out there that still have growth and, and throw trap. off incredible amounts of cash. Yeah, yeah. Those are the names you want. with a pipeline. Those are the names that are going to actually be very, very attractive. So they were just all underappreciated before you're, you're putting I think together companies that have a ton of debt. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Biotech right <laughs> now has gotten up. very, very well, We can split them up if we want. Split them biotech up. has gotten too cheap. We talk about it on there the desk a lot. We, we see these single-digit PEs yeah. of biotech companies with monster blockbuster drugs in their pipeline, and they've gotten too cheap. I think those are opportunities. You mentioned 120 for Celgene. Trading can I, down can in I the just 60s. Say, can, can I just say this for yeah. our viewers out here who are uh, most of them are really trying to figure out what to do right now, yeah. whether to add to stuff, whether to sell stuff. They want healthcare. Uh, isn't biotech let me just, part of Let me just tell you something. This is the worst possible time to try to buy things for takeouts. I'm just telling you that. It may sound great. It may sound interesting. Things may look cheap. But if you can't have but any isn't, confidence isn't that, in their 2019 under, numbers, can I get a box? Can I get a box? box. I'm just saying, worst possible time. Isn't that why Bristol Myers went after Celgene? I mean, the deal made some strategic sense, but they bought a stock okay, that was down 60 Tim, unless you had some specific knowledge that Celgene was on some short list, you might have also owned Bristol that's down 15%, trading yes. multi-year low. IBB so is absolutely is, I, This is the, the worst way, possible strategy in a bear market. If you look at right the I'm entire biotech sector since the, the, the 26th and, and everything has gone up a little bit, the IBB even outperformed every other name in the top end of the of the biotech sector. Okay, so have a ball. Buy the IBB. What the I'm saying is the biotech are actually working. And they're working now. Healthcare biotech is actually working in this environment. Argument yesterday that Bristol was a takeout, and you could have been long Bristol I for the very same argument. reasons. And the stock. Let me, ask, let me ask a simple question, guy. And let's say you're not going to Sorry, buy any of these stocks. Question. You're not going to buy IBB for acquisition. You're going to buy it for defense. Exactly. And this could be a kicker. Is that is that sound thinking or no? It, you know, I know you scoff at that. Pfizer, for example, listen, I understand over the last couple weeks Pfizer has pulled back from 45 to 42. But Pfizer hasn't been defensive. Actually, Pfizer's been a unbelievably a growth stock over the last month. Actually, since March, when President Trump tweeted about Pfizer, I'm paraphrasing, ripping right. everybody off, it was a $37 stock now, and it went straight up. So I don't think you're playing defense necessarily here. I think you're actually playing offense. And to Dan's point before, when you take one of those things in one hand and put it in the other, sometimes you put it together, you know what you create? Fertilizer. And what comes from fertilizer? Growth. Thank you, Paige. Yeah, but, but guys, listen. Just <laughs> <laughs> a little PSA. <laughs> wearing gloves if we're going to do Last this. word okay. here. I didn't know where that was oh, going. Right. Yeah, just okay. still not sure. For more on the blockbuster healthcare deal and what it means for the sector, head over to CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. <laughs> 
The bears aren't hibernating this winter as stocks are getting crushed. But what exactly is a bear market and how long does it last? Kaya Dami has all the answers. Plus, Mayday. Mayday. airlines coming in for a crash landing. But is there a buying opportunity amid the wreckage? That traders weigh in. Much more Fast Money right after this. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. Everybody. Hot. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Fast Money. Volatility sweeping the markets yet again today with all the major indices closing sharply in the red. For more on what these wild moves mean for investors, let's get down to Mike Santoli at the NYSC. Hi, Mike. Hi, Melissa. So, you know, this volatility, which has really been going on for more than three months, it's obviously unnerved investors who were not positioned for a rapid repricing of the market for some kind of a slowdown. It's also created a lot more risk aversion at the very start of a year than you normally see. And it's also registered a lot of technical and valuation and sentiment extremes of the sort that really resemble what you've seen at other uh, in the region of other market lows. Let's look at a few of these. Uh, first is the relative strength index for the S&P 500 itself. It's a 14-day relative strength index. Look at the chart. Without getting into it too much, the RSI just measures the momentum uh, an acceleration of the index itself relative to its trend. So basically, it's been falling rapidly, as we know. This is about a day old, but even more so now. And it's down near levels where it has bottomed during the post-financial crisis era. So in other words, when you're not in a full-blown bear market, when it does get to lower levels, this has been somewhere in the region where the market attempts to bottom. A relatively similar story, if you look at the percentage of all stocks that are in some kind of an uptrend, this would be uh, as portrayed by stocks that have a 50-day moving average above their 200-day average. Again, not to get into the details, but look at that. You're back to early 2016 levels in terms of how washed out the tape looks, at least by this measure. And then the mood of investors, the sentiment, uh, if you look at it, uh, investors' intelligence weekly survey, the number of bulls minus the number of bears or the spread between those two, you now actually have that finally down below zero. So basically a bearish consensus uh, from these professional uh, investment advisor types. That's a start, right? You go back to 2015, 2016, you got lower than this. So if you wrapped it all together, you basically say that the, the technical valuation and sentiment picture, it looks like it did in 2016. In 2011, it was a lot worse in 2008. Uh, so the question for an investor is, are we in the early stages of a full-blown bear market? If you're not, then this is showing uh, that the volatility might stay here, but it's somewhere in the region uh, of the market attempting some kind of a bottoming process, guys. All right, Mike, thank you. Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Our next guest says if you're worried about the surge in volatility, there is one surefire way to make money. Let's bring in Rich Rapetto, principal at Sandler O'Neill. Rich, good to see you. Happy New Year to you. Hi, Melissa. Um, so obviously you want to look for the companies that benefit from this exactly. surge in volatility. Exactly, yes. So I cover the exchanges and trading companies. The higher the volatility, normally that correlates right with the volumes. In fact, you see it at the CME record volumes this year, uh, CBOE record volumes, and all the derivative volumes. And you also have trading companies that when you see this volatility, when they make money on the spread, the spread widens out. Virtu is a great name uh, there that makes, you know, given this intraday volatility that you mm -hmm. talked about, yeah. Pete, that, that spreads widen out. So these are companies that... You know, when we see 
the moves that we've seen in the market over the last last couple months, like Mike says, and even in particular the last the last week of December when it's really quiet, mm-hmm. these companies benefit. Yeah, and we certainly, I mean, it was it was unusual, for instance, the last week of December to see the, the amount of volume, trading volume that we did see, and that was unusual. Is there a point, though, where, where increased volatility is actually bad? Does it sort of cross the line at some point? It, it did in the first quarter of this year when the VIX spiked up in one right. day. Uh, that actually shook out, you know, the double leverage uh, inverse ETFs in, in volatility. So, it, double leverage means it's minus, in, in inverse means it's minus 2x. So if the VIX goes up 50%, it's minus 100%, which basically means you're out of business, which occurred in February. This uh, last sort of move in volatility up has been much more orderly, uh, if, you, if you can call it orderly, but it hasn't been a single day spike. It's been a sustained level of volatility. And like you all talked about, you know, we think, I think, volatility, you know, is probably, you know, looking positive outlook going forward in 2019 because these drivers are all still in place that are driving you know the moves in the market rich in terms of cme you're right december average daily i think up 36 percent year over year it's it's been it's, and this has been over the course of the year where you've seen it but how do you get yourself around valuation i think cme is trading close to 26 times forward earnings now yeah this company is there is no other exchange in the world that's as diversified as the cme when you talk about them benefiting from volatility, look at interest rate volatility, whether it's the short end, and we're debating whether you know, there should be cuts uh, on, on the Fed funds, or when you see the 10-year moving around from 320 down to below 260, they benefit both ends. When you see energy and oil go from 75 down to 46, they, they trade energy products, the equity products, FX products. There is n- no other exchange in the world and, you know, they have a pretty protected product as well. They have the highest percent of their revenue tied to clearing and trading, right? Exactly. 85%. SIBO yes. is 61%. NASDAQ, our landlord, yeah. is only yeah. 25%. Yeah, they, uh, unfortunately, they don't trade uh, derivative yeah. products or not as much as the, the other uh, three exchanges in the U.S. Uh, NASDAQ has diversified away from trading. Adina Friedman has done a great job. They're just not uh, as exposed or sensitive to the trading aspect uh, of the revenues like the other exchanges. So, Rich, how do you explain from the highs in 2007 to its lows in 2009, um, the CME group was down almost 80% from its highs. Obviously, much greater decline, peak to trough, than the S&P 500. Don't you get into an issue here where if you are in a financial crisis, it's great in those early months, but when things get really dicey, we see massive contraction um, among financial institutions in general. Yeah. uh, See, that's what I'm here to try to point out, that these companies, even though they're classified as financials, they're really benefiting from volatility. I was around, I, I followed the CME since basically they went public, so back in 05. What happened, they, they uh, benefited from the migration electronics. So volumes just kept going up and up and up. And the one cardinal rule in the exchanges, if something goes electronic, it trades more. Uh, it's just much more easy to press a button than, than to be yelling and screaming. And some of you guys have been on the floors before. So they benefited from uh, the migration to electronics. Their multiple sort of got ahead of itself, too. And and the financial crisis brought it back down to earth. So I I think that was a much steeper contraction than what you would see, you know, if we continue to stay in this bear market. 
Rich, thanks for coming by. Good to see you. Rich Rapetto of Sandler O'Neill. Guy has been a big proponent of some of these uh, exchanges. Yeah. So has Pete. And uh, I actually, so- a couple weeks ago, I went and power pitched. That's when we go over to the plasma. And I power pitched <laughs> yeah. the, pitch. the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And everybody said yes, except Dan Nathan, who eviscerated me on live television, which I appreciated. And he wound up being correct. The stock has traded off. But I will, I'm in Rich Rapetto's camp. I understand valuation. I also understand, I hate using the term, but you talk about moats, they have one. Well, I think the CBOE is interesting, too, because of the fact that they are the granddaddy. They're the biggest of the big. And the fact that these guys, their numbers this year, because of the volatility being escalated and being, you know, there as long as it has been towards the end of the year, I mean, this is an up 20% year, not in December even, the entire year, the volume. So when you keep an eye on that volume, I think this, this coming year, we're going to see even more of that because I don't think we see volatility pull back until we get some sort of deals on the trade. Yeah, but with this stock so close to its prior highs and the valuation trading about 25 times, I mean, I think it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you buy it here, it's going to underperform if things settle down and volatility decreases, right? And if things really heat up and things get really hairy, then you're not going to want to own anything, and it may actually have the potential to outperform to the downside like it did in the last financial crisis. I'll tie it up and just say quickly, these guys actually ran when there was no volatility and through acquisitions. I think that's part of why the stock's outperforming now. All right. We'll have much more in today's big sell-off. The Dow dropping nearly 700 points up session lows as everyone on Wall Street is throwing around the term bear market. We'll tell you exactly what that means and how to navigate one. Plus, airlines crashing today after Delta delivered a chilling warning Ooh. about its earnings and sending the transports reeling. We've got all the details. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Airline stocks nosediving today after Delta warned that it might not all be blue skies ahead for revenue growth. Delta's warning comes on the heels of a similar announcement from Apple, and it seems global slowdown fears might be spreading. Phil LeBose in Chicago with more on this. Phil. Hi, Melissa. And the big concern is that Delta is widely viewed as the best operational airline right now in terms of profit margin, revenue growth. So if it's warning about potentially lower end of revenue growth, what does that mean for the rest of the industry? Delta today saying that it expects the fourth quarter revenue growth to be about 3%. And the reason this spooked a lot of investors, is not just because it was on the lower end, but this is the second time since the initial guidance back in October where the company has said, you know what, unit revenue growth is going to be a little bit lower than we originally estimated. At the same time, When you look at Delta overall, you also have to keep in mind that this is a company that is adjusting to the fact that it is dealing with lower fuel prices. Yes, that's good on the cost side, but it also is one of those factors that people say it could hold down, not just for Delta, but for the entire industry, the ability to raise fares in the future. And that's why not only Delta was under pressure, but the entire group, Delta and American, getting the brunt of it today, down 7 and 8%, one of the worst days since 2016 for Delta. Also, take a look at shares of Boeing. I point this out because Boeing, like the rest of the market, is under pressure, and understandably, Boeing shares are feeling it because it was such a leader on the way up. It's feeling that pressure almost as much as the market sells off over the last month, month and a half. It reports earned orders and deliveries for 2018 early next week. Usually people are focused on the deliveries. They're also going to be focused on what the company says about orders and in terms of any sense at all, which the company has not indicated, that we might be seeing some hesitancy from airlines about standing up and saying, you know what, we want these number of planes, let's say three, four, five years down the road. When was the last time we heard from Boeing, Phil? 
Oh, in terms of any kind of guidance, yeah. I want to say uh, three, four weeks. And okay. at the time, Dennis Mullenberg, you know, he said that they're still optimistic, not only about fourth quarter earnings and revenue, but also about the trajectory of the business. All right. Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau in Chicago. You bet. So is this the beginning of a tailspin for the airlines, or is there a buying opportunity? I asked Phil the timing question. So many question. puns in there, but you know he's dying. You've got to sneak them all in while you can. Um, but I asked Phil about stuff. the timing of it simply because of Apple's timing, the last time we heard Apple versus what we heard from them last night. I mean, it's yeah. a very different picture. You know, the one aspect of what was said today that nobody seemed to focus on, I mean, everybody's looking at the revenue, and I, they did raise earnings growth, by the way, but... The thing that I thought was interesting is they are expanding capacity, which, you know, has That's always been the code word for, hey, we don't like this in the airline world because these guys always overdo it. But last year, United, as they actually expanded the capacity, and this is one of the names you loved last year and did a great job with this thing, it moved to the upside very, very well. Matter of fact, outpaced the rest. I'm looking at Delta on its 52-week lows today, hitting those lows. I know it's always inexpensive. I know it's too cheap, blah, 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 all the rest of it and how well they're run. But it seems to me like this is a bottom time to start looking at this I'm glad you mentioned the, the expanding capacity, capacity and, and yeah. how this is the sort of the, the playbook, right, of the airlines yeah. and why this might be different. I asked Phil about that very question today because I said, isn't that what they always do? Isn't that typical of, of the boom and bust cycle that we've seen? He said, no, it's very different because the air airfares are so segmented now. There's basic economy, basic Main economy base. plus, economy <laughs> plus, you know, all these different things. You pay for the bag, you pay for all these different things, and so you don't feel it as much. So even though the, the base of the airfare doesn't go up because capacity is increasing. They're actually making money in all these other ancillary things. But it's still about efficiency, Mel. And I think we're bringing up good points. I mean, this is, is, as as Phil said, as as Pete is pointing out, this is the second cut for these guys on revenue per available seat mile on RASM. And this is a big deal for a company like this. Um, The other thing is airline investors don't like lower quality earnings. They may like earnings. And as Pete pointed out, they're going to they've reaffirmed EPS. um, But the revenue has been pushed down and it's a lower quality earned based upon lower fuel prices. Also interesting that Phil pointed out what is true, which is airlines actually like higher fuel prices because they can pass those costs on. I know people don't believe this, but the lower fuel price has certainly been a benefit here. They had a sale of a business, and that's what allowed their EPS to stay yeah, in line. So, Mel, you know, you mentioned Apple. When I think of Apple and $1,000 phones that are not selling particularly well, I'm starting to think about discretionary spending. And so when you put together what we heard from Carnival Cruise Lines just two weeks ago, you put Delta together today, um, Marriott, you know, biggest uh, hotel operator by revenues trading down 30% year over year from its highs. You say to yourself, maybe travel's not the place you want to be right now. And I look at a company like Expedia, where a- analysts still expect 18% growth year over year in 2019. Again, an area where that's likely to come down. Now, this stock trades at about 16 and a half times. So I'm not really certain you want to be long in Expedia in an environment like this with all the inputs that we're getting in the travel sector. No, I think that's fair, and I think you bring up a good point. But Expedia is also down about 38% or so from its all-time high last summer, and it's obviously had a pretty precipitous drop over the last couple of months. So into earnings in the beginning of February, the SIS set up for a decent trade to the upside with the short interest in the stock. So are we debating right now? Or, uh, what's what's going, going on here? Is this like a little bit of like a debate? Are we going to double that. this thing up here? We actually don't have that much time. So do you want to put a bow on what you're saying? I think you traded on the long side against $100. so is where it bottomed out at the beginning of this year. Back to you, smooth landing. Coming up. <laughs> the Nasdaq plunging back into a bear market today after Apple had its worst day in six years. Some traders are betting the stock could see an even bigger drop between now and the end of the month. We've got the details. Plus, all the talk of a bear market has Wall Street on edge. 
But what does it even mean to be in a bear market? Guy oh. Dami will break down the basics. Oh. More fast right after this. Mm, breaking it down. Welcome back to Fast Money. The sell-off slamming the street again today as the Nasdaq plunged back into bear market territory. But what exactly is a bear market? Just how long will it last? Guy is over at the Plasma with The More You Know. Guy. Love the set. The piano playing is, I actually learned how to play that on the piano, oddly enough. Maybe I'll do it on another show. But I think in order to understand a bear market, you need to define a bear market. So I went to that, I think her name is Miriam Webster, her dictionary, and I found what a bear market is. It happens to be a noun, as Dan knows, when a stock or commodity sees a decline of 20% or more from a recent high. And you'll say to yourself, self, didn't that just happen? Didn't we just see the S&P trade 29.40, trade all the way down to 23.50, do the math, back of the envelope, that's 20%. So effectively, we're in a bear market. Technically, yes, but please slide it, Earl. And you know what? Not really, folks. So what does that mean for me? Percentage drop in my world doesn't really matter. You look at individual stocks, you have some stocks that are down 35%, some stocks down 50%, and not small stocks, major stocks from their all-time highs. So you want to define it, that's fine, but for me it's not about the percentage drop. How long does this typically last? Well, we went to my friend Ken's show, and we learned that a typical bear market lasts about 13 months. What's, what lags and what outperforms? Well, guess what? After the 13 months, financials and tech outperform. Next slide, please, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Bear market breakdown. When the S&P fell almost 20% from April 11th to October 11th, guess what happened over the next six months? Well, S&P was up almost 30%, financials outperformed, followed by technology, followed by discretionary. So though we're on the cusp of a bear market Technically, you have to start looking for things that six months from now are going to outperform. I think Pete would probably agree with financials and tech. Dan might have some issue with it. But the real one that sort of interests me is discretionary. And six months from now, if everything looks rosy and the president has his deal with President Xi, the discretionary names that have been taken out to the woodshed might be looking like a great opportunity in retrospect. Hey, hey Back guy, to you. Oh, hi, Dan. Sorry. Sorry. Did your friend Mr. Ken show uh, mention if bear markets are usually associated with recessions? Do they precede them? Is there any data that uh, Mr. Show has? I'm glad, I'm glad you <laughs> asked that. And I ask myself this question almost every night when I go to bed, and I think I know the answer. And I'm going to ask it again. Does a recession cause a bear market or does a bear market cause a recession? And I happen to think it's the latter. Why? Because in a world where the U.S. economy is 73% driven by the consumer, consumer confidence in my world is just an overlay of the S&P 500. So as the market goes down, people feel less wealthy, they're less inclined to spend. So I think a market sell-off causes a recession. And quite frankly, a couple more weeks of this, and I think people are going to say, maybe we shouldn't be buying that soy vente latte at Starbucks with Pete Najarian. Jim Cramer, by the way, will have much more on the sell-off tonight on Mad Money. Find out uh, what he is calling the single most important event for the markets right now. That is at the top of the hour. Still ahead on Fast, Apple sending shockwaves across the market with its earnings warning. The stock could see an even bigger move in the coming weeks. We will explain. We're live at the Nasdaq in Times Square. Much more Fast Money right after this. Story. Welcome back to Fast Money. Apple getting slammed today after delivering a dire warning for its earnings later this month. And the options market is implying an even bigger move for the stock between now and then. 
Dan here has got all the action. Dan. Yeah, so uh, total options volume was two times average daily volume today, which is actually on a notional basis quite a lot for $140 um, stock when you think about it. And, you know, the company with that limited release last night, they did say that they're going to be reporting on January 29th. The options market between now and February 1st is implying about a $14 move in either direction. That's about 10%. Most of that is probably for the earnings move on January 29th, maybe about 7 or so percent on average over the last 10 years. Apple has moved four and a half percent um, in either direction. A couple of things here. When you think about the decline, peak to trough from one of those highs, 232, um, not too long ago, um, this stock is kind of nearing some interesting long-term support. I think we have a chart since 2011. Remember that Steve Jobs died in late 2011. There was a lot of skepticism about Tim Cook taking over. Look at that chart right there. That's a log chart. That's a really nice, well-defined uptrend that's been in place. And I think Carter worth last night kind of laid it out that that 135 level late 2017 breakout level near 135 is probably pretty decent support it happens to intersect with that long-term uptrend so you may see traders trying to position for a little support at 135 into that earnings release as maybe the worst news is out and maybe the company is a bit more optimistic about the next few months or quarters you probably saw that uh, action piece yeah some some incredible paper out there i think to dan's point if if somebody's interested in the Apple. Right now, one of the more interesting trades would be, and you have to really fully understand what you're doing when you're doing this, but selling a put to the downside of the 135s or something like that with all this inflated volatility, knowing that if it goes below there or significantly further, you're going to be owning that stock minus that amount of money that you've sold that put for. But those are the kind of trades that I think we're starting to see a little bit more of is people trying to take a stab at this whole thing because this stock has definitely been turning. This is coming down from that 220. People have been trying to catch this. So, and Pete, have not we, been we have one more it. chart. It's implied volatility. It's the price yeah. of options in Apple, if they could bring that up. And I think that's the exact sort of trade idea that you want to do when you have a stock like this that is down as much as it is. Look at how the price of options is so elevated. It's nearing multi-year highs. If you have the risk tolerance and you're thinking about dipping your toe in the water, selling an out-of-the-money put is a good way to do it, especially after the stock like this has declined so much. It's going to have value. If you understand support. what that means. I know I know you agree, but that, yeah. that's so you're something. saying I don't understand so what So people on home understand or, or what that Or tune in tomorrow at 5.30. And we're going to go over it. Yeah, it's it's oh, hey. My favorite nice show away. ever. Cool. Nice nice Fridays. Yeah. Great show. Triple T's. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody. Full show tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. There you go. <laughs> Up next, Final Trades. Final trade time, Pete. Going to the biotech world. Biogen, B-I-I-B. Giddy up. Tim. Some news out there with the CFO, but Activision, to me, at these levels is extremely cheap mm-hmm. despite... A lot going on in the second. Dan? Yeah, I think Expedia guys a little early on that. I don't think you'd want to dip your toe in there until at least 100 bucks. He does that on purpose. He, he does it on purpose. He knows, you know, I have feelings, too. Obviously, they don't matter on this show because they get stomped on a night. Welcome back, by the way. I've missed you. Great Thanks. to see you, Mel. Missed you guys, too. No, you, I don't know. Wow. I think you didn't. You just said that. It's not sincere. I mean, yeah. I'm sincere when I say I missed you. The sincerity wasn't I missed was you. Lacking. All right, jeez. You know what I didn't miss, though? What? I think the move in Newmont Mining I didn't miss because I think it's about to happen. Back to you. All right. That does it for us here on Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. In the meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. I got you. 
How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.